probably, but there probably isn't a more familiar or well-loved passage in all the Old Testament besides the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, you know, from the time we're in Sunday school, like those little kids, or vacation Bible school, our, our Bible teachers have told us about Daniel's courage and God's faithfulness to him while he was in the lion's den. And, you know, over the past seven weeks, as we've been working our way through this book, I knew that on November 15th, we'd get a chance to open up the book and look at the story of Daniel's in the lion's den. And I've been excited about that. But listen, this week, as I was preparing to preach this sermon, I became convinced. It's a good thing you and I are familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den, because there's probably not a more appropriate story for God's people to get their hearts glued into for the times that we're living through. I mean, you, you know what it means, maybe not to be thrown into a lion's den. Uh, we're going to see in a second, this is a terrible thing. But you know what it feels like to know there are uncertain consequences for those who will live conspicuously faithful lives to Jesus. Uh, sometimes it's snide comments from your family. Uh, maybe it's a write-up from the HR department at work in most extreme circumstances. Uh, maybe it's just the, the fear you feel inside. But whatever it is, we all know what it means to think twice about being faithful to Jesus because of what, what it might cost us. And because of that, Daniel is a perfect example of what it means to be faithful in the fire. And so if I do my job right, and if you stay with me, and if the Holy Spirit honors his promise to open our eyes and help us see wonderful things in the book of the law, then by the end of my sermon, by the time we get out of here, I think you'll be able to say with Daniel, I can be faithful in the fire because I'm living for the approval of God alone. You want to say that with me? Let's say it. That, that way maybe it'll happen. All right, here it goes. I can be faithful in the fire because I'm living for the approval of God alone. All right, and I'm going to prove this to you. So you got your Bible open to Daniel chapter 6. Let me get there with you, and when I get there, I'll say amen. Amen. All right. <laughs> That's a wonderful inversion of the normal practice, right? All right, Daniel chapter 6. This is what God's Word says. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could, no, they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Remember, today I want you to know that you can be faithful in the fire because you're living for the approval of God alone. But I need to warn you, if you take this to heart, you say, it is my goal to live for the approval of God alone. Better be careful, 
because it'll be obvious to the people around you. And it was obvious to Daniel's co-workers. Uh, Daniel brings us to this scene after the overthrow of the kingdom of Babylon. We saw last week when Belshazzar saw the writing on the wall. And then that very night, his kingdom fell to Darius the Mede, and he was killed. And it doesn't surprise us that Darius's first task of business was to sort of consolidate his authority and power. The Medo-Persian Empire was, at this point in history, the most expansive empire the world had ever seen. And he knew that he had to rein in this behemoth, try to find a way that he could exert his rule in an efficient way. And so he decided to take 120 provincial government official, officials, they call them satraps, and set them in charge of each of the provinces. But maybe you can imagine 120 provincial governors is kind of a lot to manage on your own. So maybe as a temporary measure or just as sort of a delegation measure, he appoints these three commissioners, these overseers and supervisors, who are going to oversee these 120 satraps. But like Daniel did during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, he starts to experience an enlarging of his influence. And my dad always tried to tell me that cream rises to the top. It seemed like everywhere Daniel went, the Spirit of God within him enabled him to advance beyond his initial responsibilities. And that's what started to happen. Right? Darius sees this guy. And we, we think of Daniel as a young man, but he's been in Babylon for over 60 years. So he's pushing 80. Uh, but Darius sees this older gentleman. I'm not going to make the mistake like I did last week of calling him old. But an older man sees an older man distinguishing himself among the group of supervisors, and he says, this is, this is my man. I'm going to put him in charge of the whole thing because I trust that if I were to put a man with that kind of wisdom and understanding in charge, things would happen the way they need to happen. And so it was obvious to Daniel. Here he is, this man, living for God, being faithful to the things that God had called him to, just allowing the Spirit of God within him to work through him. And it was obvious to Darius, and he was ready to elevate him to a position of high authority. But it was also ev evident, obvious, to his jealous co-workers. Y'all ever had a jealous co-worker before? Seems like nothing you do uh, escapes this person's notice. They're always needling you, putting the elbow in your side, bothering you up, and that's exactly what happened. As soon as Daniel started to experience an enlarging of his influence, these co-workers started looking for an opportunity to tear him down. If Daniel was going to be elevated, that meant they were going to experience a demotion. They were going to have that. And so the intra-office politics kicked in. Right? They, they know how this works. They've done it before. They're career bureaucrats. So they know the system. They start looking for opportunities to tear him down. And they go down the normal list. They look for mismanagement in his department. Are any funds missing at the end of the year from his financial statements? They can't find any embezzlement, no fraud, never taken a bribe, never awarded a contract to his children or his close friends. He's squeaky clean. Beyond that, there are no scandals, skeletons in his closet, no mistresses to drag out and put in the newspapers, nothing like that. Squeaky clean. They can't use any of his professional experience to tear him down. The only thing they can look to is his religious faithfulness. 
I don't know if you caught how Daniel put it. He said in verse 5, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel. This Daniel, you hear the voice, right? We're not going to find any accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. You see, it was obvious to everybody around him that as successful as he might have been professionally, occupationally, vocationally, his real loyalty was not to Darius the kingdom of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was to God. It was obvious. If we're going to find something against him, it's going to have to be in regard to God. And I just want to warn you that if you take it to heart today and say, I want to live for the approval of God alone, it's going to be obvious to the people around you. And this is the way God intends for it to be. I mean, you think about his relationship with his people Israel. He called them out of Egypt and took them into the Sinai Desert to sort of constitute them, consecrate them as his people. And to do that, he had to sort of ingrain in them a standard of living, his law. And his intention was, if they would commit themselves completely to his way, then it'd be obvious to the nations of the world that their God was like, unlike any other God in the world, and that they were a people totally unique. It also meant that if they lived that way, they would be a light to the nations, that the peoples of the world would want to be a part of that. They'd want to experience the blessing of God that they saw in Israel's life. God intended it for it to be obvious to the people around them. Jesus picks up on this, and he sort of takes this same idea and applies it to his people. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he tells them, hey, you're the salt of the world, right? And then he tells them, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way that nobody lights a lamp and then puts a basket on top of it, but instead sits it on a lampstand so it provides light to the whole house, so you too ought to let people see your light shine in your good works so that they'll see them and give praise to your Father in heaven. It's when a man or a woman, when a teenager decides they're going to live for the approval of God alone. He intends for it to be obvious to the people around you. I mean, it's not like the church is some kind of secret society. You know, we got members, so maybe you think that to become a member of a church means that you have to be inducted and learn the secret handshake, and then you get the special tattoo or the signet ring that everybody knows because you have the special words to say or the special handshake to do that. Oh, yeah, you're a Christian. You've, you know this handshake. I know that's nonsense. Jesus said, You'll, they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. They'll see the good deeds you do, and they'll give praise to your Father in heaven. Listen, you want to live for the approval of God alone, it's going to be obvious to the people around you. And Daniel shows us that as it's obvious, it can prove costly. Let's keep reading here in verse 6. The commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, 
King Darius signed the document. That is the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days should be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, No, this statement, yeah, this statement's true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed. But he keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statutes which the king establishes may be changed. Listen, I warned you. You set yourself to live for the approval of God alone, it's going to be obvious to the people around you. And because it's obvious to the people around you, you'll have to learn to obey despite the cost. See, uh, this injunction that Darius puts in place is really bizarre to us. Um, I know we've lived through a polarizing political environment. That's the catchphrase, the polarizing political environment. And people, you know, have their guy and their man. Uh, I hope you have not stooped so far as to praying to yours. You respect them, you vote for them, but there's a line between voting and praying to your candidate, right? The injunction that Darius puts in place crosses that line. It says, nobody's allowed to pray to their God or to any man except for me for 30 days. And so this is sort of a strange decree. Why would he put it into place? Well, an interesting backstory. You may not find this interesting, but Bear with me for half a second. told you last week that Belshazzar was the son of the imp emperor of Babylon, Nabonidus. But Nabonidus had a personal god that was different than Bel, the god of Babylon. And so he installed his son, Belshazzar, named after Bel, Belshazzar, on the throne of Babylon. And he retreated to an oasis in Saudi Arabia. Now when Nabonidus heard, this is, this is where it gets good, when Nabonidus heard that Darius was about to overthrow the city of Babylon, he left his oasis and went back to the city for a last stand. He knew the odds were against him, Darius and Cyrus, they were uh, powerful kings, the army was uh, more than anything you could stand against, and so to sort of stack the deck in his favor, he called for all the idols, you know, the little statues of the gods, in all the temples surrounding Babylon, in every little town and village that had its own personal God, he called for all those idols to be brought to Babylon so that he could make sure the gods were really on his side. And so from the time that Nabonidus called for all the idols to the city of Babylon until the day that Darius made this injunction, all these little temples, these little village shrines where the people would normally go and pray, maybe even offer some sort of incense offering through a priest. They've been shut down for business. They've been under like government-mandated lockdown, not allowed to do any religious observance there because, after all, the gods weren't even there to hear their prayers. 
But an interesting thing happens, that after Darius takes over, he sends all the idols back to their temples and shrines. Now, this repatriation of the idols likely coincided with this decree. While the gods are in movement and in flux, no god is in his designated place at which a person could go and pray. His officials come to him, stroking his ego, and say, Hey, Darius, while all the idols are going from place to place, why don't we institute a temporary religious idea that instead of praying to each of their gods in their individual places, we know that you've been established by the gods. The gods are clearly on your side. They've made you emperor and you're strong and powerful. Why don't we just pray to you and then you make sure the gods hear our prayers for us? And so I think that's kind of the context for Darius's injunction. It's a, a, a temporary measure while the idols are being transported back from Babylon to their local places so that the people can get back to business as usual. But of course, Daniel's not affected by his God being in motion from one place to the next. Right? He knows that his God is everywhere. He's the one living and true God, exalted over all. He's not confined to any location. He sure doesn't live in a little idol. And so Daniel just went about his business as usual. Every day, going into his attic, bowing down towards Jerusalem and praying. And so I want you to get this. This is, this is really important. Of course, this is the reason Daniel ends up in the lion's den to begin with, is this exercise of personal devotion. I mean, we see Daniel's prayer, and we're kind of amazed by it, um, because it's not the trivial kind of devotion that we're sometimes tempted to give to God. You know, the perfunctory, just like going through the motions, checking off your checkbox, prayer time. You know, you should pray in the morning, so you do. You sit down, and while you're eating your grape nuts, or my kids like Captain Crunch, you, you offer up a little prayer, God be with me today. Now, Daniel goes through a pretty detailed regimen of prayer. I mean, did you get this? He uh, prays three times a day, kneeling, facing towards Jerusalem. This is a detailed and regimented prayer life. It involves his whole body in a posture of prayer. He's kneeling. He's directed towards Jerusalem because Solomon had asked the Lord to promise that if anybody prayed facing the temple, then the Lord would hear their prayer. Uh, he prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and night. I mean, almost all of Daniel's life was caught up in this personal practice of private prayer. And so it's important for us to learn from that. But maybe we ought to have a little more discipline in our prayer life than we do. But we could go too far, right? Because what Daniel does is continue a practice that he had been working on for, for quite a long time, maybe even 60 years by this point. It's not a drummed up, ostentatious display of personal piety. You know, it's not like he went out and organized a protest or a prayer rally. He's not down on the corner making sure that everybody knows that that law does not apply to him. He goes to his room, continues his practice of personal and private prayer. You know, there's times, I think, for displays of public piety. Um, one commentator I was reading this week talked about how in times when prayer is forced down, maybe that's a time for public prayer. When public prayer is normal, maybe that's a time for private prayer. But I think we need to be more sensitive to the Spirit's leading and pray however and whenever he wants. But Daniel knew 
that whatever the injunction or decree Darius put in place, that wasn't going to change anything for him. He wasn't living for the approval of Darius. He wasn't living for the approval of his friends, his co-workers. He was living for the approval of God alone, and so he was willing to obey even if it ended up costing him. And that's what really separates Daniel from us. Not that he had a regimented, disciplined, personal prayer time that we don't. Now, what differentiates Daniel from us is that Daniel was motivated by a fear of God. Now, we know the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and Daniel was wise. Everybody saw it. Daniel lived with a recognition that God was God, Daniel was not. And therefore, God deserved his reverence and respect. Daniel lived in the fear of God. Most of us live with the fear of man. Fear of God, the fear of man. You know, we look at this story and we ask, how would I respond if I were in Daniel's shoes? Have you asked yourself that question yet? Have you thought about it? Mike, Mike brought it up in the prayer. How would I respond if I were in Daniel's shoes? And I've been thinking about that this week. It's easy to draw a one-to-one line between Daniel's situation and an injunction not to pray, government-mandated orders for churches to close, and no singing aloud, people. You know, we know that this is the way we are told right now. It's kind of a one-to-one line. But I've been thinking about this. We don't really have to ask ourselves how we would respond if we were in Daniel's shoes, because you and I have faced circumstances and consequences much less severe, and we've wilted. We wilted. You know, uh, Ed Welch wrote this book, When People Are Big and God is Small. I want to give you a line or two from his book. It's kind of confrontational, so this is Ed Welch speaking, not me. Sometimes we'd prefer to die for Jesus than live for him. If someone had the power to kill us for our profession of faith, I imagine most Christians would say, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, even if it meant death. However, if making a decision for Jesus means that we might spend years being unpopular, dishonored, poor, or criticized, then there are masses of Christians who temporarily put their faith on the shelf. Here's what I mean. Tomorrow, the office of president puts out a new rule. No more share in your faith. What would change in your life? Not allowed to share your faith anymore. You're going to jail. Statistics say 90% of Christians have nothing to worry about. They never have shared their faith and they never will. What if there was forced confiscations of your Bible? The Gestapo comes in and says, hand your Bibles over. Would it make a meaningful difference in your life? When was the last time you picked it up and read it? Our shelves are full of it, but functionally, they've been burned already. Rule came down. No more prayer. How many Christians would have to modify their personal quiet time? And so Daniel's motivated completely by the fear of God. Lives for his approval alone, but man... We're faced with such less severe circumstances, consequences. We wilt. They go, oh, what do my family say if I start taking this Jesus thing seriously? 
What would HR put in my personnel file to follow me forever in this company if I talk about Jesus with my coworkers? What my friends say at school, they knew I was a Christian. We don't have to put ourselves in Daniel's shoes to ask how we'd react if there was a lion's den involved. We face much less severe consequences every day, and we wilt. But not Daniel. Daniel hears the cost. Hey, if you keep praying to your God, we're going to throw you in the lion's den. And he doesn't flinch. We don't have any indication that he ever even considers just, you know, praying quietly to himself in the lunchroom instead of going back to his attic. Uh, instead, he just went through the motions. And his co-workers knew that that was what he was going to do. They'd seen him long enough to know that faithfulness to God was his number one priority, and so they could bet that if a rule went into place that said no more prayers allowed, Daniel would break the rule. And so I don't know if you caught this back here in verse 11. These men came by agreement. They'd planned ahead of time. All right, guys, let's synchronize our watches. And at 12.05, when we know Daniel's going to be in the middle of his midday prayers, let's meet up there and all get the proof that we need that Daniel is breaking the rules. When they showed up, their alarms beep, 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 beep. They all are there. They see it. They run straight to Darius and they tell him, hey, we need to go over something. And, and their tactic is really seditious. And it shows you they are just, they know how to play the game. Because first they just want to talk law and order. Hey, King, isn't it true? I'm having a hard time remembering here. You're going to have to refresh my memory didn't you put an injunction in place that nobody was allowed to pray for 30 days or something like that? Wasn't there? Yes, of course. That's exactly what I did, and I signed off on it. It can't be changed. Right? Let's just talk the abstract law and order. Let's not bring your favored official into things. But once they'd established the point that, yeah, this was a rule that was in place, then they brought Daniel in. And they tried to create distance between Daniel and the king. They said, hey, there's this Daniel. He's one of the exiles from Judah. He's not a Babylonian, not a Mede, not a Persian. Can he be trusted? I mean, he's not one of us. There's this Daniel of the exiles. And like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, they say, he doesn't pay attention to you. Your laws don't apply to him because he thinks he answers to God alone. And every day, he goes into his attic three times a day. Not inadvertent prayer, like he accidentally fell into an old ingrained pattern. But he makes it a point, king, to violate your injunction, not once, not twice, but three times every day. And so this well-established rule that you've put in place uh, has been violated. And you've got to do something. That's crazy. That, no, that would never happen in the real world, would it? Listen, if you want to be faithful to God, you want to live for His approval alone, it's going to be obvious to people like that all around you. And it may end up costing you. I can't stand it for Daniel, but in the midst of this mob, that's what it is, the way it's, I mean, it's not just the two officials. I've kind of been talking about it like it is just the two guys get the king in the corner by himself. But the way it talks about it, um, in verse 15, then these men came by agreement. Uh, it's the whole group of them. It's mob rule. I like the way one commentator, Joyce Baldwin, she said that 
in light of unmovable public opinion, even the absolute sovereignty of a king was powerless to act on Daniel's behalf. Unmovable public opinion overcomes the absolute power of the monarch to step in on behalf of his friend. So the mob's going crazy. There's Darius. But where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? I mean, kind of by the story, he's still praying in his room. He's not making a peep. He's not worried about it. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had the opportunity to look the king in the face and say, hey, if this is the rule and this is the punishment, we're willing to take it because we're not going to be unfaithful to God. But Daniel, he's just nowhere to be found. And I think that illustrates this next point, that if you want to live for the approval of God, you'll stop defending yourself and trust him to vindicate you. Look here in verse 16 with me. The king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. Then the king spoke to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. The stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Just quickly. Uh, he was worried that those guys hated Daniel so much that they'd break into the, uh, the pit in the middle of the night and go ahead and kill Daniel if the lions hadn't. So he has to put in place all these situations that we'd normally take care of with a closed-circuit camera. Uh, he makes sure that they don't get in and, and there's no funny business. And so then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. I want to just think really quickly about Darius. Because to this point, Dan Darius has been powerless in light of these satraps and officials. Their public opinion has overruled the king's sovereign authority. But he's deeply concerned about Daniel. Uh, and an interesting thing happens. Right? He, he understands that Daniel is unique, that there's a spirit in him that's unlike the spirit in any other men. And he, at this point, has to know that that spirit is the same spirit that leads Daniel to pray to his God and ignore his injunction. And an amazing thing happens. As Daniel's being carried away for his punishment, the king comes and offers him a word of encouragement. It's almost a prayer in verse 16. Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. See, Darius recognized what the co-workers had recognized, that Daniel serves God alone, the God whom you constantly serve. He knew that that's the deal, right? That Daniel's faithfulness to God had got him in trouble. But he goes beyond just that recognition of what was obvious. For the first time in this whole book, we see an outsider, a pagan king, express what almost, almost, I don't know if it is or isn't, almost is faith in God. Darius said, nobody's allowed to pray to their gods, you have to pray to me. He proved powerless to save Daniel. Here he's finally understanding that maybe there is a God out there who is powerful enough to save you, Daniel. Maybe it's the God you serve, the God that you are unwilling to go back on, the God you are unwilling to deny, the God you were willing to go beyond uh, normal decrees, and you were willing to pray to him because you believed he heard your prayers. Maybe this God will save you, Daniel. I mean, it's a totally unique point in the entire book. The only time an outsider expresses dependence and faith in God. But this statement also sets up a test. 
Perhaps your God will save you, Daniel. Will he? Will he save you? Or will you die in the lion's den? And so Darius goes back to his house. No appetite. None of the usual entertainment is satisfying to him. He just wants to be left alone to think, to pray, to worry. And I love what happens next. He, in the next morning, uh, verse 19, the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near to the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, listen to this, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they've not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also to you, O king, I've committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. Now, we, we imagine the scene from our Sunday school lessons. Daniel in the lion's den, the lions there lounging on the rocks, and the angel of God standing there. But it's surprising, isn't it, that we're not actually given a description of the scene. And we see the fourth man in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All we get here is Daniel's description. That in the night... While he was there hearing the hungry lions growl, and we know they're hungry because in verse 24, they take the officials who had falsely accused Daniel and they threw them in. And before they even hit the ground of the pit, the lions devoured them and crushed their bones. So we know the lions were hungry. And while Daniel was there wondering if the lions were going to get the better of him, apparently an angel from God came and shut their mouth. The God who had heard Daniel's prayers when he prayed three times a day the God who had heard Darius's suggestion that perhaps God was able to save him. The God who had seen Daniel's life of faithfulness had defended Daniel and had vindicated him before his enemies. Now the truth is, many of us would have taken this 30-day injunction as a sign from God that we just needed to modify our prayer time for 30 days that we'll get back to the way things were eventually, but for this little period of time, we need to do what they say. I didn't mean for that to have any force on the COVID restrictions. I just felt like maybe somebody would interpret that to say that the government has no right to tell us how to worship God. We could talk about that at a different time. But we would have taken it as an excuse to modify our prayer time. But Daniel did it. He acted on the belief that God would bring him through. But he didn't need to defend himself. He didn't need to try to preserve his life or save his life. Instead, he could trust God that if he gave his life up in trusting it into his hands, that he would defend and vindicate him. And I think Daniel did this not just as kind of a leap of faith, but as a conscious thing. So I think Daniel knew the stories of the Bible. He knew the story of Joseph, Jacob's son whose jealous brothers had thrown him into a pit and sold him into slavery while working in Potiphar's house, had been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, had been put into prison 
and had risen up in the ranks to where he was over all the prison. But then he'd been forgotten. But then, when the time was right, he was remembered and elevated to a position of authority in Egypt so that he could preserve his family through a famine. I think Daniel knew that story. Saw the parallels in his life and Joseph's. I think Daniel knew the stories of David, who'd been anointed king by Samuel, called of God, but had been forced to live on the run from the first king of Israel, Saul. A lot of great little stories in First and Second Samuel about David's struggle for kingship. A great one uh, comes when David sees Saul and his men encamped at a place called Hakalah, and Daniel, uh, David, goes into Saul's tent, and instead of killing Saul in his sleep, which is what most of us would have done if an unjust tyrant had been hanging out near us, he stole his spear and his water jug, and he took it back to his camp. And he's standing across this valley, and he calls out to Abner, the commander of Saul's army. He says, hey, Abner, you better go check your man's tent. I think somebody's been in there, stole a spear and water jug. Who do you think you are? You can't even protect your king. While Daniel, uh, David's calling out, taunting him, you know, Saul, in his tent, hears David's voice, and he says, Hey, David, is that you? And David says, Yeah, it's me. And listen to what David says. Why does my Lord, this is 1 Samuel 26, 18, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? You see, I think Daniel knew that God's people are often unjustly accused of crime. And they suffer for it. But he also knew that God sees that suffering. And in the end, God wins. He vindicates his servants. The person who lives for the approval of God alone ends up experiencing his vindication. I think Daniel knew, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Daniel made a conscious decision to obey God more than men because he believed that God would defend him and vindicate him. And that way, Daniel's life points us like an arrow to Jesus. You know the story of Jesus, I hope. That he was born of a virgin, lived a completely obedient and sinless life, living for the approval of God alone, completely faithful in every way. It was obvious to the people around him. The people heard his teaching. They said, who teaches like this with authority from God? They saw his miracles and said, whoa, praise God. Nobody's ever seen miracles like that. But it's also obvious to the religious leaders who despise Jesus because he refused to play by their rules. And so one of his closest friends betrayed him to those religious authorities. And they crucified him on a cross. It was such a raw experience for his disciples. They abandoned everything go back to their homes and their jobs because they'd forgotten what the scriptures teach that God defends and vindicates his servant and so on the morning of the third day like Darius running to the lion's den 
Jesus' closest friends go to his tomb. And what do they find? But it's empty. And his grave clothes are folded up. He isn't there. He's risen, just as he told you. Jesus lived for the approval of God alone and suffered for it, despite the cost, willingly laying down his life, and God vindicated him. You see, Jesus knew the prayer of his father David in Psalm 16. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus consciously, with a clear head, made a decision to humble himself, becoming obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. And because of that life of obedience and faithfulness, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what the Scriptures teach. The person who wants to live for the approval of God alone will live an obvious life, conspicuously different from the people around them. And it will often cost them. But that's not the end of the story. God vindicates His people. But I believe with all my heart that when a man or woman, a teenager, commits to living for the approval of God alone, he acts the same way he's always acted for Joseph and David and Daniel and Jesus. That, oh yeah, you may experience discomfort your friends may turn their back on you. Your family may mock you. But God will not forget you. He'll vindicate you and defend you. Jesus says you'll be turned over to kings and rulers. You'll be hated by all. But I hope you got it. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So hear me this morning. If you want to live for the approval of God alone, give up defending yourself and trust God to vindicate you. All right, last point really quickly. You want to live for the approval of God? You will bring glory to God. We see this in verse 25. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he's the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who also has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. Listen, it's clear, Daniel had to go through the lion's den, but God got the glory in the end. He revealed himself to be the living and true God, the one who is able to hear prayers, protect his people, and vindicate them in the end. And Darius had to acknowledge it. He couldn't stand by silently. He fulfilled what Jesus says in Matthew 5. They'll see your good works and give praise to your Father who's in heaven. And I promise you, just as it will cost you, God will be glorified by your life of faithfulness. Your life is meant to point people to God. Not yourself, all Daniel's jealous co-workers. They were worried about the glory for themselves. His promotion meant their demotion. In the end, they died in a lion's den. 
But Daniel humbled himself, remained faithful to God, sought his approval alone, and God got the glory. That's why I really do believe this, and you can take it to the bank a thousand times over, that the best life that's ever been lived is the life lived in complete faithfulness and dependence on God. Each one of us, we want to make an impact. We want to leave a legacy. We want our families to blossom and grow. We want our children to have a better life than we have. We want our country to succeed and flourish. But all that is so minimal compared to the eternal glory and majesty of the God whose kingdom knows no end. You want to make your life matter. Seek His approval and live for His glory alone. That is the only thing that will last for all eternity. Not our family names, not our trust funds and inheritances that we might leave to someone down the line. All that matters is Him. That's why the earliest Christians experienced a radical reorientation of their life. The Holy Spirit falls on Pentecost. People get saved by the thousands. And what happens next? But they sell everything they have and share with those who are in need. Later they suffer. They're scattered because of persecution. They end up in far-flung places, having to leave their hometowns and businesses they've labored to build over generations. And the Apostle Peter has the audacity to put in writing this from 1 Peter 3. Who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? I wish that were the case. Somebody tell Daniel. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give the defense for the hope that's in you. But do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, when you're slandered, not if you're slandered, when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if it's the will of God than for doing evil. This is just the reality. The person who makes it their aim to live for the approval of God alone will be obvious to the people around them. You'll be conspicuously different. And sometimes that's going to cost you. But don't worry about that. Don't make an effort to defend yourself. Instead, trust in God who promises to defend, to defend and vindicate His people and receive the glory from your life. That is the story of Daniel. And this morning, it's the story that God is calling you to. This morning, he's asking you, and I'm challenging you. to consider whether or not you have been living for the approval of God or the approval of man. For too long, maybe you've been modifying your behavior, adjusting your faithfulness so that you avoid the comments from your family. You avoid the rumors that might get started at school. What people might say to you at the break room. But today, God is calling you to forget them. Don't even worry about them. 
live for his approval alone. I got some questions you may want to ask yourself as you're processing that. Ask yourself this, is it obvious to the people around me that I'm living for Jesus? Or have you been one of those members of the secret society of Christian believers? Special ring and handshakes, you know all the words. But if somebody just followed you for a day, would it be obvious to them that you're living for the approval of God alone and not the approval of man? Ask yourself, do I obey God despite the cost? What I mean is this, do you deny the desires within you? Do you sense the fork in the road during the course of your day? Faithfulness to God over here. Denial of God over here. And due to the cost, you take the left-hand road. Deny God. Satisfy yourself. Or do you obey despite the cost? Are you trusting in God to vindicate you? Are you still trying to defend yourself? Prove to everybody that you're just like them. Oh, you may be a Christian, but hey, there's nothing much that separates us. I'm just a human being like you. You defend yourself or you trust in God to vindicate you. And lastly, am I bringing glory to God with my life? Or am I trying to bring the glory to myself? Just a few minutes, we'll pray. And I challenge you to ask yourself those questions. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart, to reveal to you the places where you've been living for the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Listen, if there's a way that I can help you take the next step in your journey to live for Jesus, let me know. You know what that step is. You know the place where you're hanging up. If I can help you get across that hurdle and take your next step, let me know. I'll be down here in the fellowship hall afterwards. Listen, maybe you need to enlist a friend in the fight. Daniel had to go it alone, as best we can tell. Christian life is too hard to do it on your own. This church would love to surround you and encourage you. In fact, we've got members of our prayer team that I'd love to be available in the fellowship hall to pray with you. If you need somebody to pray with you and get in the fight with you, come talk to them. But most of all, challenge you to hear what God is saying to you. He's calling you to live for his approval alone in an obvious way, despite the cost trusting in him to vindicate you when things go bad and in everything receiving glory from your life. Let's pray.